Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are my colleagues at Investors Chronicle, Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer and James Norrington, Specialist Writer. It's holiday season, so no doubt many of you have been enjoying time away from the daily grind and torturous commute. But for some people, the desire to escape the rat race is so great that a sunshine break is not enough. They want a more permanent solution, like the reader featured in this week's Portfolio Clinic, Early Retirement. But lovely as this prospect seems, before you can leave the office for good, you need to make sure you have enough money to live off. And this is a lot easier said than done. James, you are one of the experts who reviewed this week's portfolio. So in your opinion, with low interest rates and a low yield environment, is early retirement a realistic option for anyone? Uh, well, Leonor, it's certainly getting harder for people um, who've built up a moderate-sized pot um, to rely on. Uh, thinking holistically about your wealth and income potential, human cap- capital and your ability to earn is, is one of your biggest assets, um, and it's a great hedge against uh, against low returns. So, um, so I think before you start, you need to think very carefully about um, whether you know you want to take the opportunity cost of missing out on that, um, because it, um, if you can work just five or ten years longer, then there's more opportunity to build up a bigger pot for retirement, and of course you're not drawing down, so you can reinvest uh, dividends and um, and utilize the power compounding to grow your pot. Okay, now um, if you are going to do this, what kind of asset allocation might you need to consider? Well, the challenges are twofold and one is is growing your retirement pot to a size where you could retire early and the second aspect is is obviously protecting against capital loss because the sooner you take your pot, you've got less time um, from now to to, to recover from from any drawdown period. Um, Drawdown as in peak to trough capital drawdown as opposed to Pension mm-hmm. drawdowns, two things. Um, but in this week's clinic, Chris Dillo uh, suggested having a good exposure to overseas equities to help grow the portfolio um, and also protect against sterling weakness. Um, and Craig Brown, the other the other guest writer, actually suggested using um, less volatile absolute return funds um, as well as strategic bond funds for, for diversification as well. Okay, so a mix then of your high growth alongside... Um, let's say some uh, less racy assets. Uh, so yeah, some mix, so some um, some mi- minimal, some less volatile um, uh, exposures, um, and uh, uh, you know some 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 income generating exposures as well. Okay, now on the subject of the less volatile stuff, um, the reader featured in this portfolio clinic um, is holding quite a substantial chunk of cash. He's got sixteen percent of his portfolio in cash. Is this too much? And um, if it is too much, what should he have it in instead? Well, I mean, first thing to say is important to keep some cash um, to meet unexpected expenses. Um, and of course, it protects against market shocks. But the flip side, particularly in the current environment, is negative real returns. Um, Craig Brown, again, offered a very helpful suggestion with this in the clinic. Um, he suggested using um, structured deposits um, mm. for a portion of the cash allocation. Um, and these, they guarantee the return of your deposit um, and, uh, and a higher level of return than obviously than cash because um, based on uh, the performance of an underlying uh, instrument such as the, the FTSE 100 index, um, if that meets certain performance criteria, you, you get a, a certain return um, which, which will outstrip cash returns but, but without some of the risk of investing in equities. Okay. Now, um, you're saying that um, you know some cash is important. So presumably, you shouldn't totally avoid cash. No, not at all. I think I think you you should always have um, you know a good 
a good chunk a few thousand pounds in cash just just you know in, in case you don't know your boiler's going to break down or whatever um and uh and, and also you know that there's just it's it's just you know, just have something on on reserve okay now um maybe you don't totally avoid cash but um in this situation this reader and you know, people in similar situations is there anything they should totally avoid I think if you're preparing for early retirement, um, then you're not really looking for spectacular ten baggers, um, um, you, you, you know. So, so avoiding penny shares uh, and lottery stocks in general. Like I said, your portfolio has got less time to bounce back um, if an investment goes wrong. So, so unless you've got sort of a, a few grand that's outside of your um, your retirement planning pot, which which is fun money to to go on some of these sort of sexy stocks, um, then uh, then then to be honest, really that that that's an area to be avoided. Right, so high-risk speculative direct shareholdings then. Okay, now um, as you approach the early retirement, or perhaps a little less early if you are going to work a bit more, um, should you alter the asset allocation? Um, I think you, know, you should probably, for your equity portion of your allocation, um, move into less volatile stocks. Um, looking at companies that you know that are safe, um, have historically proved um, you know, to, to, to move around less, uh, to, to fall less in recession, um, and, and companies that pay a good dividend. So utilities, pharmaceuticals, consumer staples, all good examples of, of more defensive um, uh, equity allocations. Um, I also watch out for having highly cyclical exposures. Um, um, such as you know, our reader had quite a lot of peer-to-peer lending and commercial property mm. exposure, um, and that that sort of comes with um, the, the drawback of, of also being you know quite illiquid. And I'd also just make the point with the P2P lending; it hasn't been around very long. We don't know how it's going to perform the next time. You know, there's a there's a there's a, a serious credit issue or or a recession. Okay, now we've been talking a lot about the reader's portfolio, but are there any other steps that people wishing to retire early can take? Um, well, I think you know the, the sensible ones really, and um, just the no-brainers. Make sure you're you're using your full pension and ice allowances to ensure that when you come to draw down money, that you're doing it in the most tax-efficient manner. Um, and another one uh, is just to check your state pension entitlement because you know that can be a crucial kicker for your retirement income. Okay, now. Other than wanting to retire early, um, the, reach, the, the reader featured in this week's portfolio clinic said he didn't like investing in open-ended funds. That's um, unit trusts and open-ended investment companies. But Emma, you've actually been looking at some research which suggests investors should think very carefully before they rule out investing in open-ended funds. Why is this? Yes, that's right, Leonora. So this is new research done by Tilney Best Invest. And it looked at the ongoing charge figures between investment trusts and open-ended funds that were managed by the same management team and had a similar um, investment manager um, mandate. And what they found is actually that investment trusts are no longer necessarily cheaper than open-ended funds. And um, they found that in particular, 53% of cases, open-ended funds had lower um, ongoing charge than the equivalent investment trust. So this idea that open-ended funds are always more expensive um, than investment trusts doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And this new research has suggested that anybody who's been avoiding um, open-ended funds in favour of investment trusts might need to think twice for that. Okay, why is there this belief among um, many people that open-ended funds are more expensive? And, um, you know, what's changed? Um, Well, the thing is that they did used to be more expensive on the whole. Um, before 
back when advisors were able to receive commission on funds that they'd recommended. Um, but the rules changed in 2013, and that means that um, the practice of advisors being able to receive commission on funds um, has, has stopped. And many of these funds have now released new, cheaper share classes, so-called clean share classes, um, that don't include the commission payments. And that means that a lot of them have been able to have ongoing charge figures that are less than 1% compared to 1.5% or so before when they did have the commission attached to them. Okay, and considerably undercut investment trust mm, charges. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, thinking about those costs, what would be some examples of cost differentials between similar investment trusts and open-ended funds? Um, well, of the research that Tilney Best invested, um, the largest fee difference they found was between Jupiter Green Trust and Jupiter Eco- Ecology Fund. And they're both managed by the same manager, um, Charles Thomas. And the trust had an ongoing charge figure of 1.73%. And the open-ended fund had um, 0.79%. So that's quite a big it's difference. quite considerable. Yeah, yeah. Um, almost a full percentage point. Um, in terms of some of the other trusts and funds compared, we looked at, there were some that were IC Top 100 funds. Um, one was Pacific Assets Trust, which is managed by David Gates and Sashi Redding. And that has an ongoing charge figure of 1.3%. And um, they also manage a, a open-ended fund called Stuart Asia Pacific Leaders. And that had a, a fee of 0.9%. So again, quite a big difference there. And you know, you can see the full um, list of the IC Top 100 funds that this research looked at um, in this, this week's magazine. Yeah, okay. Now, did the research just find that there were differences on cost? Um, no, it actually also found some differences in performance. So it found that over three years, the open-ended funds delivered a higher total return um, than the comparable trust, 60.5% more of a time. Um, but over five years, actually, it was a trust that performed better in 64% of the time. Okay. Um, so does this mean that going forward, you should always go for open-ended funds or, you know, why of any reason why you might still want to consider investment trusts? Um, no, I wouldn't say so. I mean, you know, you you need to think about um, both the different kind of asset classes and the advantages and disadvantages. Um, so with investment trusts, I mean, they've got lots of other benefits. For example, um, their ability to um, use gearing and reserves to enhance returns in, in down years. And also, you know, the suitability when it comes to liquid asset classes. So as we've seen with property mm-hmm. open-ended funds, for example, and the problems that they've had there, the investment trusts haven't had the same level of issues there. So that's one area for, you know, you could still want to consider an investment trust for that reason. OK. Um, now, James, um, what's your view on this? Should investors be structure agnostic when choosing a fund? Um, I think probably the first thing is, is looking at what you want, what exposure you want in your portfolio, what you want it to do for you. Um, uh, personally, I quite like ETFs because they're, they're cheap um, and, uh, and you know, they, they, they tend to they track their underlying index well, um, very liquid and, and very transparent. Um, but but you know if uh, certain um, if you want to expose to certain emerging markets or you really value a manager um, a manager's expertise um, then I wouldn't have uh, any sort of um, any res- reservations about going with a managed managed fund. 
Okay, um, some useful points. And um, yeah, as Emma said, um, you can see a full list of cost, cost differential between equivalent funds and investment trusts, including our IC Top 100 funds, on our website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk. Now, if early retirement isn't a realistic option, escaping your current employer for a new job and a change of scene probably is and may well be something you have done or will do, possibly several times before you retire. However, the downside to this is that you will probably have started several different pensions of your various employers, which can be an administrative nightmare. But Kate, you've been looking at this, um, and there is a way that people with several pension pots can make their lives a bit easier. What is this? Um, well, basically, it's this idea of consolidating previous pensions that you have into a new one. So either combining your workplace pensions or combining workplace pensions in a SIP, for example. And yeah, there are clear benefits to doing that. Obviously, it's easier to keep track of if you've got everything in one place. Um, but you can also make the most of better costs elsewhere sometimes. And Emma's referred to clean share classes now, in some cases, if you have a really old workplace pension, it might be invested in quite clunky old share classes. You might have a new workplace pension where you really like what it's invested in um, and it's it's kind of cost efficient. So that might be a good reason. Or you might want to just make the most of pensions, freedoms and flexibility, which actually are quite hard to do or, or make the most of in a workplace pension, particularly a kind of old style one. So then it might be worth moving into a SIP, though most of the time, and mostly here I'm talking about moving workplace pensions, combining those into one. Okay. Um, how easy is it to consolidate? Is everybody able to do this? Yeah, well, it should be pretty easy. The easiest ones are defined contribution pensions. Um, and in that case, normally you just speak to your new provider and, and they should kind of do most of the heavy lifting for you. The only one you can't move out of um, is NEST, which is the scheme set up by the government. And in fact, you, you can't move out of that at all at the moment, but that restriction will be lifted next year. OK. Um, now, that all sounds good, but are there any reasons why you might not want to consolidate your pensions? Yeah, well, in fact, there are several reasons that you need to kind of think twice. I mean, the mainly the, the ones that you don't want to be moving are old, older styles of pensions. So for a start, anyone with a defined benefit pension, you just don't really want to be touching that. You don't want to mess with something which is giving you kind of income for life and lifelong security. Because obviously, if you leave something, if you move out of something, um, you know, the, the benefits end from that provider. So defined benefit, definitely leave alone. And then there are quite a lot of old, older pensions which come with really good guarantees and safeguards. And again, you don't really want to move anything if you're going to be giving up some kind of bonus or some kind of guarantee. Um, so the most common of those would be you might have a guaranteed annuity rate, a guaranteed bonus, or you can have life cover attached to a scheme. Um, and particularly if this is from a job that you'd had a while ago and you haven't kind of checked in, it might be worth just looking and seeing if moving that would actually mean foregoing something like that. Um, but also exit penalties are a real thing to think about here. And that can be in the form of admin fees or you could be charged a percentage fee. Um, and some of these basically charge an upfront cost um, and setting up a scheme and then we'll recoup that over the lifetime of the, of the you know, scheme that you're in. So if you move, they might kind of hit you with with all those costs you haven't yet paid back. Um, 
So that's, you know, that's something to think about, really. Okay, so there's a lot of cons as well as pros. So when you're making the decision on whether to consolidate or not, what would you say are some of the main considerations? I guess that the main thing is to firstly work out what you actually have, particularly in terms of old workplace schemes. You need to know what type of pension that is and then work out if any of those offer you anything good in the way of bonuses or guarantees. Um, Also, you know, think carefully about what you're moving into. If you are in your current workplace scheme, how good is that? Do you like it? Do you like what it's invested in? If you do, then go ahead, maybe move everything if you want it to all be in one place. But if it's not even much better than your other schemes, you might as well just leave them alone because they're not, you know, nothing bad will happen to them. They're obviously just going to keep um, building up. So I think work out what you have both currently and in the past and then give some careful consideration to whether you'd actually be better off moving. Okay, some really helpful points. And you can see Kate's step-by-step guide on how to consolidate your pension in this week's money section. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast, so it just remains to thank Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer, and James Norrington, Specialist Writer at Investors Chronicle. You can read more on how to retire early, fund charges and transferring your pension in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a very good bank holiday weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.